0: Do I have to use his real name?
1: No, no, you can use whatever name you want. The point is the story, not not the name.
0: So it doesn't matter, I just make anything up? up. Anything? Anything. Okay, well, I'm going to, I guess Benjamin, let's just call him that. Can I call him
1: that? (laughs) That's a great name, we can call him Benjamin.
0: So the story is, I got this guy Benjamin fired, and I loved it. You know, HR let me know the day it was going to go down. And so, you know, I was sitting at my desk, kind of, you know, just like waiting. And he, you know, gets called in and he goes into the meeting and um, and he comes out and he's escorted by like an HR lady and um, one of the guards from the lobby. And he's given like one box to put all his s*** to and then he's got to like go right out the door immediately. And so he's there, and he's got like his box of action figures, and and he kind of turns to to the newsroom and he says, "I'm going to write an experimental revenge novel about you all." <laughs> and I just thought this guy is outrageously deluded. and like it just kind of added to the joy. <laughs> and it's just become this kind of hilarious office joke. <laughs> like anytime anyone does anything like kind of wrong like whenever I have to kind of you know I'm the boss so sometimes I have to reprimand people and whenever I do someone just goes I'm going to write an experimental revenge novel about you <laughs> and I just I, well I love that I mean as funny as it is like, like that is like that scene like I still can't let it go. I still hate him. I hate him. Here's the thing. Like, I'm the editor of a culture magazine. I'm the boss. You know? Like, people are supposed to listen to me. Like... I think I've earned many people's respect on the staff, but like, this guy would come into these edit meetings and it's just like, you know, he would throw out these ideas that were just so bad or, I mean, just so many and he would just like dominate the meeting throw out these ideas act like he was the only one who knew anything about like the underground scene in new york he's the only one who knows who the cool you know hey you like that band that band's no good hey this band this band's good hey you think that artist is good that artist is no good i got it i mean the guy would not let anyone else say anything so i had to cut him down and some of his ideas were actually good but he so infuriated me that even if his ideas were good i had to say no because I needed to leave room for someone else, because he was just blowing all this hot air. He's the most annoying guy in the universe. So I would say no to some of his ideas, a lot of his ideas. Just t- shut him up, because it would, it, would, it would incense him. He would be incensed that his ideas weren't being listened to, and then he would shut up. And that was the only way I could shut him up. I was forced to like work with this guy. He was just like given to me as this like new media guru. But, like, he's not even a journalist. He's not a reporter. He was supposed to come in and, like, pimp us out on, like, Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and Vimeo, you know? Like, he wasn't supposed to come in here and, like, totally, like, you know, dominate editorial meetings. Just, like, make some, go tweet. I mean, I hate this guy. Like, let me express to you how much I hate this guy. I hate this guy maybe more than any f***ing human being ever in my life. I hate this guy. I hate him. I cannot stand this guy. I talk about this guy with my therapist, like, all the time. And, you know, uh, I, you know, my shrink brought up this idea. And she just said to me one day, like, are you in love with him? Am I in love with him? Am I in love with Mr. Tweet? <laughs> I am not in love with Mr. Tweet. That is so offensive to me. <sighs> okay, okay I'll, I'll, I'll lay down the whole story. Let me tell you how we met. Benjamin showed up in the magazine about a year ago. Like, he snuck in because he met like my friend she's the news editor for the magazine like he met her and uh, she thought he'd be great at the job and she told me like i just met this guy at a conference like i think he would be really like good for you and so like you know i trust her implicitly and i think like great like i'll and i'm ready like send him on you know and like he comes in like you know like i want him to feel like at home you know so like he arrives and like you know we go out for some drinks and have you ever sat across from someone on a date and they seem to say every possible thing they can to make themselves unappealing like they want to talk about their drug use like all the women they've been with and that like he even was a womanizer, like, if you're out on a date with someone, like do you really want to say this? Like why you know, like like it's like he didn't even give it a shot. Like I was just trying to have it like be a date. I said date, but I didn't mean a date. I mean, like, it, it, it wouldn't even matter, like, because even, uh, where I work, it's like even our, like, you know, managing editor. I mean, he has relationships with all the women who work there, and when he's done with their relationship, uh, they happen to be done working there. I mean, like, so this is not a problem where I work. But that's not what I meant. <laughs> that, that I mean, that's, I was not on a date with him. I was trying to make him feel at home. He was in the town. I was trying to make him feel at home. And, like, I was his boss and like he was making himself so unappealing like he was purposely like just saying i don't like you stay away like every word he said he never said these words but every word he said was like go away and i don't understand that he lives a couple blocks away from the restaurant so you know we ride our bikes you know and i like at this point, like good lord, I have to pee so bad. So, like, you know, we'd end up, you know, riding by his apartment and, you know, kind of stop our bike and get off, and like I felt like, oh, at least I can like kinda of pee up there, you know. And like he would not even invite me up to his apartment to pee. <laughs> so like I said, like I talk about him a lot in therapy. And you know my therapist one day was like okay okay like why do you hate him so much like what are you seeing when you hate him that much and i thought like (laughs) what i see is myself like several blocks away from his apartment like crouched between two cars lifting my skirt that's what i think of when i think of
2: him
3: One of the really funny and fascinating things about being wrong is that it's actually impossible to be aware that we're wrong.
1: Catherine Schultz is the author of Being Wrong, Adventures in the Margin of Error.
3: If we knew that we were wrong, we wouldn't be wrong. Nobody's committing intentionally to a false belief about the world. If they are, they're not wrong. They're deliberately lying or, or pulling the wool over your eyes for some reason. But when we hold a belief that we're later on going to decide is erroneous, In the moment, we obviously have complete faith in it. I think of it as that moment, if you grew up like I did, watching the Warner Brothers cartoons, that morning, the Sunday morning cartoon moment, where the uh, roadrunner is is dashing off the cliff and the coyote is following him, and of course the roadrunner can fly and the coyote can't, and there's this great moment where he's run off the cliff, but he has not yet realized that You know, there's no solid ground underneath him. And the moment when we're wrong about something, but before we've realized it, is like that moment. We think that our belief is rock solid. We think we have, you know, all of the the facts in the world bolstering us. And we have not yet looked down and realized that, whoops, (laughs) that's not the case. And yet, no matter how many times we have that experience of realizing that we're wrong about something, and we have them a lot, right? I mean, arguably, we have them, at least in minor ways, every day or at least every week. And yet it's like it's like our, our wrongness register is made of Teflon. It just slides off of it. We're incapable of retaining this notion that, you know, be, you know, we were wrong in the past and hence there is at least some probability that we might be wrong in the present. Wrongness in the present is incredibly hard for us to hold on to as a concept. And this inability to know that we're wrong in the moment, I think is part of why people really can get so defensive about error because, you know, we tend to think that it's a psychological issue, that people can't face up to their mistakes because, you know, their ego is either too huge or too fragile. But in reality, I think for a lot of people, it's so structurally impossible to imagine that we're wrong in the moment before we've realized it, that it, it actually is almost a natural consequence uh, of, of the structure of error, that, that feeling of rightness is almost inevitable. And we feel right because... We take our beliefs to reflect the reality of the world, and we take our beliefs to reflect the reality of the world, because in some sense we have to. I mean, it's quite difficult to get through daily life kind of constantly undermining every single one of our own beliefs. Even if you're going to be a somewhat skeptical person, we're quite choosy about which of our beliefs we decide to really interrogate at any depth. And the more important a belief is to us, the more convinced we are that we hold it because it reflects the evidence that it is, uh, that belief is carefully constructed out of real material facts about the world around us. Sometimes that's the case, we really have tried to create, a, a, you know, foolproof, bulletproof belief about the world more often than not we haven't we've inherited the belief from our family we've we share it with our entire community we don't even know that we have it it really is one of those things like you know I think this chair underneath me is solid um, or we hold it because we were exposed to some evidence but not other evidence or because the evidence we're exposed to we saw it first and it seemed the most compelling and I think it's important to start recognizing our worldview as composed of all these kind of little atomic beliefs that, you know, individually and collectively can be an error. Once we start sort of locating ourselves in the middle of this universe of beliefs, it's a little bit easier to think about error but it's eliminating error isn't isn't the goal. I think the goal is not not to cease to be wrong, but to be but to get better at being wrong. And by getting better at it I mean I don't necessarily mean committing more mistakes. We all do plenty of it as it is. I mean Uh, learning to respond quickly and gracefully and with humility and with generosity in the face of our mistakes.
4: I met Miranda at a show... This girl was sort of leaning up against a, a fence smoking a cigarette and she like sort of looked up at me idly as i walked out and said you're hot and i of course being being a man of many words responded with you're hot <laughs> and she said you want to go and i said sure
1: when musician mishka Shubele took miranda home that night he says she demonstrated that she was extremely emotionally unstable In fact, Mishka said he knew right away that she was psychotic.
4: I could tell that first night that she was trouble. So, of course, I continued to wake up next to her for probably the next, like, two and a half or three months. Um, Alcohol is a hell of a drug, man. And it was the middle of winter, and I was, like, cold and lonely, and, you know, Greenpoint is miserable in winter. And she was always there. She was always there, and she always wanted to hang out, and she was... And um, she was what? She was wicked hot. I knew at the time. I was like, "This is a mistake. This is definitely a mistake. This is this is not the right thing to do." Of course, you can come upstairs. It ended badly. She would show up at every single show I played, and then make a scene, like trying to get me to take her home, and called me nonstop, and emailed me nonstop, and like stalked. Like other girls who, on my like Facebook page or MySpace or whatever, and like she was like sleeping outside my house. It was a nightmare. It was such a nightmare. But then finally, I was at a show with a buddy of mine, my like super tight inner inner circle best pal, and uh, he was he was a little tight on money. You know, he needed you know he needed to borrow some money. So we met up at a show, and I loaned him two hundred fifty bucks. You know, and then uh, Miranda started texting saying, you know, oh, it's my birthday party. I want you to come down. And I was like, no, I'm I'm not coming to your party. I, no. I parted ways with my buddy. And uh, I guess he was going to go down to Lit where her birthday party was. And I was like, you know, good luck, man. Godspeed. You know, have a blast. And I met another girl who I'd seen a couple of times before, but uh, we ended up having a lot of drinks and then coming back here. And then um, the next morning, Miranda starts texting me because oh, she had like given me a poster or something. And she was saying, oh, I'm, I'm coming to get my stuff. And I was like, I'm not at home. You gave it. It's a gift. You know, it was like a freaking $15 poster, too. You know, like it's ridiculous. So we, we like walk out of my house to, to get in my car to go to the subway. And just as we're getting in my car, here she comes, like Hurricane Miranda, like just like her makeup from the night before, like, halfway down her face and, like, torn fishnets and her, you know, like, hairs flying everywhere and she's got a big cup of coffee and, you mother f-. She takes this big, full cup of coffee and throws it on my car, turns to this other girl like, yo, just get in the car. I'll explain later. And she was like, sure you can. <laughs> you know, I bet this happens every day. A minute later, my phone beeps and she's like... Yo, I just want you to know I f***ed your boy last night and she had gone home with my best pal the night before and he had taken my money, my $250 in his pocket and gone home with this girl who was already like my nemesis. So finally after she storms my house and then bones my closest pal, that's when I finally had to, I, I was like this is it. So I changed my phone number phone number I'd had for 10 years and blocked her email I'm a writer and I am fun employed uh so yeah I mean I I guess I spend uh a good portion of my day uh you know frittering it away on the internet um and it's not unusual for people to randomly start following me on myspace or, or facebook or whatever um but usually they're like Guys like me And they have a bunch of bad tattoos And like they want to talk about my music So one day I noticed that this girl Is following me on Twitter And she doesn't have a picture of her her cat As her profile Um, And she has a picture of her face And she's beautiful She's both wicked hot And appears to be incredibly kind And in my experience those two things Are almost always mutually exclusive You can be totally hot or totally kind But never both and she appeared to be both. So we start talking. You know, first we're just going back and forth through Twitter and then she gives me her email address and we're like going back and forth and just, you know, talking and then um, I see that she's on Gmail one day at the same time that I do, so I, I like chat her. And then we start chatting back and forth and, and, um, and she sounds awesome. She's a musician like me, she, played, uh, she plays harp, which is cool. Um, and she played uh, Harp for uh, Devendra uh, Banhart, which is kind of corny, but well, that's okay. You know, I'm willing to overlook that kind of stuff. I actually want to meet a real girl, have a real girlfriend, have a relationship, fall in love with a real human being. And I'm going to change my ways. I, uh, my drinking had, and my drug use had gotten completely out of control, so I stopped drinking and around the same time that I met this girl Jana, the same time that she started following me on Twitter. So I'm sort of detoxing, just sweating incredible amounts and talking to this girl. And more and more she gets she becomes my lifeline. You, like she's I can complain to her about how I'm feeling and the nightmares and the shakes and all that. <laughs> By this point she had already commenced with the sexy pictures. Every couple of days she's trickling the me these um you know, artfully shot, but very, still very tasty pictures of her. And she's beautiful. I mean, she looks like a freaking angel with no clothes on, <laughs> but we, we talk and talk. And then finally she's like, I live in Greenpoint," I'm like, awesome. I'll, I'll get on my bike. I'm going to bike over to your house. I'll be the weird sweaty guy outside with the like internet perv gleam in his eye. And uh we'll look, you know, the violin music will slowly swell up and like our clothes will melt away. We'll join in an embrace fade out, you know? Um, so she invites me over and she's going to cook for me one day, which is awesome. But she's going to make tuna nice and I don't know what that is. So I just, I, in my mind when I'm like projecting it, I just think of tuna sandwiches, which I like, which is good. And then she cancels. She's like, Hey, um, I just wanted to write to you and let you know that we can't be friends anymore. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? You know, like, I've been talking to this, you know, I've been chatting with this girl, like, every day. And she was like, well, I ran into a friend of mine who knows you. And I was like, and what's your friend's name? And she said, it's Miranda. Well, this is horrible. This is horrible. You know, this is like a mistake that I made that is now going to deprive me of the, my one my chance at a new life because I'm gonna have this awesome new sober life with this girl and like I'm not gonna screw around she's not gonna screw around we're, we're gonna be happy together and like it just seems so unfair. I cried like a little baby because I was so sad because I was so excited to meet this girl and then and it was ruined. but she wanted to keep talking. She was I mean she was so funny and so charismatic. I mean it was like the you know the charisma of like Elvis and Hitler in a really hot girl's body despite her grave uh reluctance to meet somebody as awful as me i I said, listen, just meet me just. Meet me in the, in the, you know, in the flesh. I need to meet flesh and blood, real person, real girlfriend. It's do or die time. Um, I'm staying. I'm cat sitting for my friend in Manhattan. Um, meet me there, or never contact me again. Do or die. And then she texts me and she says, "I'm not coming." You know, and I was like, are you kidding? You know, we, we've been talking, like, so much and hitting, hitting it off. Like, I've shared all this stuff with you that I haven't shared with anybody. And, um, you know, and, like, you've been sending me all these pictures and stuff. You know, we're, it's going to be great. And she says, no, you know, I'm not coming. So I said, all right. It's, like, 11.45. If you're not here in 10 minutes, I'm going to the liquor store around the corner. And I'm going to have a drink. And, um... She said, don't do it. I'm coming. And I was like, all right, you know, you've got 10 minutes or whatever. And then, and I'm walking to the liquor store and, uh, she didn't show up. And so I'm like, that's it. So I'm walking down the stairs and I was like, well, you know, I gave it a good, gave it a good shot. I'm trying to make it sober. I made it a couple of months. That was good. And this is going to taste delicious. So I'm walking to the walking to the liquor store to make it there before midnight before it closes and my phone buzzes and she texts me and she says i'm around the corner i'm on second and a she's here so i'm finally gonna meet this girl and i I really i feel like i'm 13 years old again and um you just my heart feels like my entire body just i feel like i'm floating you know and i'm finally gonna meet this girl So I walk to the end of the street and I take a left and then I see this long, shapely leg come out from behind the corner. And out steps Miranda. And in that moment, in that moment, I knew that I, in, in many ways, I had really just gotten what I deserved. And, and it sucks getting what you deserve. <sighs>
3: really interesting questions about wrongness is what exactly it takes to get us to realize that we're wrong. And uh, the answer is that it can take staggering, staggering, staggering amounts of evidence. In fact, sometimes we just never get there at all. But amazingly, there's a lot of situations where essentially no amount of evidence is sufficient to Overturn a belief, and and once you're in a situation like that, you're talking about denial. You're talking about someone who, for whatever constellation of reasons, is not going to be brought to believe that they were wrong. And denial is an astonishingly powerful force. In 1844, this um, religious group—it wasn't particularly a cult—this this religious group numbering in the hundreds of thousands all across America gathered together to, to wait what they were certain was the end of the world. This was the Millerite movement. It was, And so they've, they've fixed upon this date based on incredibly elaborate biblical interpretations on which the world is going to end. And they all get together and, and gather and wait for this date. And they're really very deeply committed to the belief in not simply in the emotional and psychological sense, but materially, a lot of these people, they have given up their land, they have paid off their debts, they've paid off their neighbor's debts, they've given up their money, they have failed to plant their crops, they've just, they're wholeheartedly committed in every imaginable sense to the proposition that the world is going to end on October 22nd, 1844. Needless to say, as we know, it did not and this poses a real problem if your fundamental, central organizing belief in life has been that the world is about to end. And there's many, many amazing things about the story of the Millerites, but one of the most amazing is that not all of the Millerites accepted that they had been wrong. In fact, arguably not even a majority of the Millerites accepted that they had been wrong. A remarkable number of the one-time true Millerite believers found some way to, to kind of um, right out of existence the failure of the world to end, which is pretty stunning when you think about it. I mean, there's not really any more dramatic piece of counter-evidence than the continued existence of the world when what you had believed in was the end of the world. The most dramatic example is the folks who claimed that Jesus had actually come down to earth, which was the whole plan, right? Like Christ was going to return and the whole eschatology would commence. These folks claimed, oh, Christ actually had returned, he was alive in all the hearts of the saved, and everyone else was just kind of getting ready to wither on the vine and die off. They somehow kind of rewrote their past history to create this new belief that things had actually gone precisely as planned. And as dramatic as this sounds, it's not terribly unusual. I think a lot of people in the face of the flat disconfirmation of their beliefs find a way to either go back and say, well, it's not exactly that I believed X, I believed X and a half, or Y, and and Y actually did happen, and here's my case for it. There's a lot of of rewriting of memory that goes on in these situations. And, you know, there are instances in which denial, like any kind of wrongness, can be trivial, but on the whole I think most of us find it really troubling. It feels like such an absolute refusal to cope with reality and to confront reality that it's really maddening for an outsider watching it happen and and you can only imagine that for someone experiencing it someone really trapped in the throes of denial that it's actually a very emotionally frustrating and difficult and constraining situation to be in i'm I'm quite fascinated by denial and i think it's fed by our dread of being wrong by our sense that it's somehow abhorrent, that it speaks to the worst things about us, that it's an indictment of our overall worth. And I think in cases of extreme denial, we see people get so entrenched and dug in that it's almost like they can't find a way out and they haven't had the experience of learning that backing up and saying, you know what, I was wrong, is actually a move that can look really graceful and really strong and that can elicit a lot of acceptance and admiration I think the sense is everything's going to hell all I can do here is like stonewall right I'm just gonna stand here and swear up and down that I was right I was right I was right because I cannot it's like a rat trapped in a maze like I can't find another way out and the other way out is obvious and easy and that's what's remarkable about about people's inability to find it really all you have to do is say you know I blew it
2: President,
4: in talking about the continuing recession tonight, you have blamed mistakes of the past and you have blamed the
2: Congress. Does any of the blame belong to you? Yes, because for many years I was a Democrat. As I've stated previously, I believe our policy goals toward Iran were well founded. However, the information brought to my attention yesterday convinced me that in one aspect, implementation of that policy was seriously flawed. And now I'm going to ask Attorney General Meese to brief you. you still maintain, did you make a mistake, make a mistake in sending arms to Tehran, sir? No, and I'm not taking any more questions. I took a risk with regard to our action in Iran. It did not work. We did not achieve what we wished and serious mistakes were trying made in trying to do so but in debating the past in debating the past we must not deny ourselves the successes of the future let it never be said of this generation of americans that we became so obsessed with failure that we refused to take risks that could further the cause of peace and freedom in the world
1: Mistakes were made is one of Ronald Reagan's most famous phrases. But as you just heard, the great communicator couldn't even say it without screwing it up. Today, Ronald Reagan is considered America's greatest president, which drives journalist William Kleinek kind of nuts. The way he sees it, all of America's current major problems are Ronald
2: Reagan screw-ups. Ronald Reagan believed that if we emancipate corporations, emancipate free enterprise by stripping away all of the checks and balances on the uh, operations of free enterprise, we would be a more prosperous country. Uh, but in the 25 years since he did that, or almost 30 years, we, we see that the, the result has been disastrous. We talk about uh, the BP oil spill was because of lax regulations on offshore drilling. The uh, financial meltdown was because of uh, deregulation of the financial sector we had uh roving blackouts in california we've had blackouts on the on the east coast uh we we've we've had the poor federal response to hur- hurricane katrina because of the stripping away of fema and things like that there's just been a whole litany of disasters that have occurred because the role of the federal government was diminished in these very important sectors.
1: In his book, The Man Who Sold the World, William Kleinig doesn't just make the case that the Reagan administration screwed America, which it did. By the end of his term, 138 Reagan administration officials had been convicted, indicted, or were the subject of official investigations for misconduct and or criminal violations. But for Kleinek, the man himself, the man most Americans think is the greatest president ever, also screwed America.
2: His uh, advocates like to portray him as a as a man of character. Uh, Peggy Noonan actually wrote a book uh, about her years in the White House called "When Character Was King," but there really is not uh, much evidence in the public record that there was anything extraordinary about Reagan's character. I believe he was he was a pleasant person to be with, and and he came off as a very kind, jovial person, but he never put other people's interests ahead of his and never sacrificed anything for friendship or for a for a cause. He, he watched out for his own interest and the people in his administration watched out for their I- interests. I mean, that's the ethos of Reagan's philosophy, self-interest. Well, the people in the Reagan administration pursued their own self-interest. There's cases in Reagan's diaries where he specifically can be seen turning a blind eye to it. So it. The, the, the idea that Reagan was completely in the dark and didn't know that these things were happening in his administration just doesn't hold water.
1: For his book, Kleinig traveled to a number of American small towns, towns decimated by Reaganism, including Reagan's hometown of Dixon, Illinois. But most of the folks Kleinig spoke with couldn't connect the dots.
2: If you ask them about Ronald Reagan, they'll tell you he was the greatest thing that ever happened to that town and that he was a great man of character. Uh, they just aren't are not able to connect this to the Reagan administration's policies. So for me then the
1: big question is can America ever really move forward though if we can't admit it, who's responsible.
2: There's a lot of people out there like the uh, uh Tea Party movement which is an enormous amount of people who uh still don't get it and uh yeah I don't think we can solve the uh the nation's problems until more people do get it. No mistakes were not made. We made mistakes.
5: I had friends from um, my life in New York who were like, "Join Facebook, join Facebook," and you know, then I can share stuff with you. And I was like, "Okay, okay," but then one day. I got a friend request from somebody I thought I'd never see again in my life.
1: When Cheryl Rogers joined Facebook, she reconnected with a few of her classmates from West Haven High School, class of 1975. But then, one day, Joey, the most popular guy from choir, reached out to her.
5: Joey was this six-foot-three, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Italian boy, Gorgeous, had the voice of life, he always played the lead in the musicals. I had a crush on him for the last two years of high school. We were friends, but something happened one day to connect us even closer. In my junior year, my dad died suddenly. Of course, I mean, it was incredibly traumatic for me, but school was always a place for me where I could find comfort. You know, as this little group, this little group of kids who sort of ruled the choral department, we were in rehearsals all the time. It's just like it is on Glee. We were together night and day. One night we were in a rehearsal and I think that the pressure and the sadness built up in me, and I just started crying. And Joey said, I, I'm going to take you out of here. And he put me in his car, a blue skylark, and he drove me around, and he told me, I'm going to drive you around, I'm going to let you scream, I'm going to let you cry, I'm going to let you do whatever you need to do, and I did, and that's what I did. I really just allowed, I just released all the the frustration and, and grief and anger I had at my dad dying, and all of that release of emotion eventually pulled us together, and we started to make out you know, racial tension was still very high and it was not going to be something that we were going to do just to walk around together and say, hey, look, black girl, white boy, we're going to, you know, we're going to start going out. Not in that town. We kept that quiet. We stayed friends, but there was always an underlying tension and that was sexual and emotional that we couldn't Joe, and that we couldn't express to each other. After high school, I just thought I would never see him again. The friend request from him had a little message in it that said, After all of these years and still an absolute babe, so good to see you. I accepted it, of course. And I wrote him a very breezy note that went back with it and said, how are you? I thought I'd never see you again. And, you know, I heard that you had an opera career and I'm really proud of you. And, um, um, tell me about your life. And I was anxious to hear about his life because I had heard through, um, mutual friends, high school friends, that he had become a relatively successful opera singer in Europe. I got a response back the next day and the response was um, jaw-dropping, to say the least. It was a long, long, long email and it was a long email that detailed that once he saw my face it brought back all the memories of that night that we had and he felt so ashamed that he had never pursued it because he wanted to pursue it and had continued to think about me and when he saw my face it just all came rushing back and he actually apologized because he said he didn't know what my life was at this moment. and. Um, it, it might have been inappropriate for him to be saying all these things to me now, but he just wanted me to know what an impact I had had on his life and still do. I am not married. I don't have a husband. I've never been married. I don't have a boyfriend. I'm a free agent completely totally. So I wrote back to him and I said, of course, I remember um, that night. And I don't know if you recalled it or even knew it, but I certainly was. <laughs> I was enamored of you too. And then he wrote back another really, really long letter. So this is now three contacts he's had, and he's ramped it up now from be my friend on Facebook to. <laughs> I had a crush on you in high school, a big crush on you in high school, too. Now I want to share all of that with you. I want to share all these great feelings that I still have for you and tell you about my life. And, and oh, and by the way, he's, he's setting the stage to tell me about the bad marriage that he's in right now. But he told me, you know, he's got kids and, you know, he's, he's the woman he, he called his wife the woman I'm married to now. And I thought, well, nobody refers to their wife as the woman I'm married to. (laughs) They don't like them very much. And so I decided that he was still in love with me and that that made me happy. And I decided that I was going to reciprocate. And I wrote him back a letter saying, I love you. I wish I had known all of this so many years ago, but I now love you too. We moved the relationship off of Facebook to our personal email accounts, And we emailed each other once a day. I suggested that we move to the phone, but he wrote me a very involved letter saying that he hated the phone and so, um, and he was also afraid of what the trail of a phone, of phone calls would be, and so we basically continued this email, this relationship through email, and that went on for the next six months. I mean, that's basically how it stayed, and it never graduated to Skype. It never graduated to um, the phone. I, you know, talked to him about when we might see each other and that uh, I was ready to come over to Europe and, and, you know, try to arrange for us to meet. But again, he was afraid. I find out eventually why he feels he can't leave. And it's kind of shocking to me. His wife is the breadwinner, so he doesn't want to leave her because she's his financial support. You know, he is no longer singing opera, and his wife is the breadwinner. So he is afraid to do anything to end that relationship. Well, if I was rich, I would have sent him money, and I would have said, come on back home, and let's figure out what, you know, what to do. I just wanted to be with him. I wanted to be in love, and that's that's what I was getting. I was getting love which is something I had never really had before in life, and so I was getting it from him. But then, one morning, I got my normal email from him, and I opened it, and I read it, and I enjoyed it. Then about, 10 minutes later, I noticed that I had another email that came in from him, and I wondered what it was that he had still to say, and I opened it, and it was not to me. It was to another woman, and the title of the email was, Just Need to Touch You. He wanted, had been meaning to send her a song that his daughter had written. And every time he listened to this song that his daughter had written a while ago, it reminded him of our relationship. And the name of this song was Absence of Time. And... He had uh, attached the song. Even though the email wasn't to me, I recognized it because um, he had sent a very similar, if not exact, email to me about three weeks after we had declared our love to each other with that song attached to it. And then I see a name. a woman named Stevie, and I know this woman. Stevie is a woman that Joey and I went to high school together with. It's not some woman in Europe that I'm competing with. It's some stupid woman from my high school. And I think seeing that this is what I was up against, it allowed me to have a, I think, a much faster understanding, but it didn't. It didn't minimize the pain of feeling that I had been very, very wrong. But um, the more I think about it, the more I'm glad that it did happen, because I think that um, certainly um, people should be willing. When, um, when presented with, with affection and emotion to react to it. And I certainly reacted to it. And I, even though right now I think I might not, I, I say to myself, that's it, I'm not doing this again. I'm sure that when, when true love and emotion presents itself to me again, that I will... I I, I will consider it with an open mind and with an open heart.
3: wrongness calls on us to do is make sense of our own identities in new ways. And historically, there's two kind of interesting and competing ideas about what it means to be radically wrong about ourselves. And one of those ideas, which I find very fascinating, but a little bit troubling, is that we weren't actually wrong. We finally figured out who we are. This narrative is incredibly common. The, one of my favorite examples of it, because it's one of the most beautiful, is, is, comes from Augustine, the, the um, philosopher and, and um, eventual saint who famously wrote these confessions about his own conversion to Christianity. He'd been very, very anti, anti-Christian in his youth, and he converted to Christianity, and he wrote of that experience that until he found God, he had placed himself behind his own back refusing to see himself. And there's this notion that there was always this real self that wanted to be Christian and wanted to believe in God. But he had hidden it, he'd obscured it, he'd refused to see it. And in finding God, he hadn't changed, he hadn't even been wrong, he had just suddenly come to embrace his real essential self. We actually hear this narrative all the time in everyday life. We tend to construct these stories that suggest that our identity is totally stable and fixed and can never change, because it's really reassuring in the same way that we want the world around us to be stable and fixed. And another kind of amazing example of that idea about wrongness uh, comes from Whitaker Chambers, who's the uh, famously uh, kind of rabid communist. He joined up with the Communist Party, and then he actually became a Soviet spy, And at some point, he got a little bit disenchanted with the Communist Party. And then he got a lot disenchanted. And then he quit. And then he promptly um, renounced the entire thing, went to the State Department, confessed his entire past. And one of the interesting things about the way that Whitaker Chambers tells the story of what seems from the outside like this radical change in belief, right? I mean, this guy starts out as the most fervent communist you can imagine, and he becomes about as fervently anti-communist as you could be. He doesn't tell it like, I was wrong about communism. He doesn't tell it like there was this huge change. He tells it like, all of those years that I spent being a communist were to serve this end, so that I could come forth, stand in front of you here at the State Department today, and tell you the truth about the entire thing. He has this amazing line where he says, it's not so much that I changed, it's that I became who I had always been. That, to me, is an amazing sentence. I mean, first of all, it's actually a grammatical impossibility. Like, I became who I had always been. That's It's sort of beautifully wrong and beautifully impossible, and it captures this idea that we have that we want to always be the same person. And I understand, as I said, where that comes from, because we all like stability in our lives and in the world around us. But I also find it a little disturbing, in part because I really believe that If we're not alive in order to change and to grow and to become someone who we didn't quite start out as the beginning, I'm not exactly sure what we're doing here. And I think one of the great things that wrongness can call on us to do is actually accept that we aren't fixed, perfect, unchanging, immutable beings. We can change, we do change, and that's actually one of the most marvelous things about us. And in a funny way, this is an idea that We've all known in this kind of surface cliché way forever. This is what people are getting at when they say "to err is human," or they make a mistake and they say, "Oh, well, you know, I'm only human," but I want to push that idea a little farther. There's something about being wrong that is completely unique to the human mind and the human imagination, and it is precisely the thing that enables us to do that other thing that animals and machines and arguably even God cannot do, which is invent stories about the world. You don't have to invent ideas or theories or stories if you already know it all, like God. And you aren't capable of it if you're a machine or an animal. We are, I think, unique among the creatures of the world in both needing to and being able to create our own pictures of the universe.
1: This episode of Too Much Information is called Mistakes Were Made. It was produced by myself, Benjamin Walker, with Bill Bowen and Laura Mayer. And it featured Mishka Shubile, Cheryl Rogers, William Kleinek, and Katherine Schultz. You can always stalk TMI at WFMU.org and subscribe to the TMI Podcast.